Welcome to SCD Church's podcast. You can always join us for our live services Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings out in our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our services live online at seacoastgrads.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Thanks so much for listening. Well, good morning. Somebody's awake over there. All right, good morning. I don't know if you noticed this when... Uh, Nick is always a great worship leader. He's always awesome, right? He's all, yes, he's always great. But here's what I noticed. There's a little bit of extra pep in his step. And I don't know if it's because two weeks ago today he got married or not. Yeah, no, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Big deal. Amy always has a pep in her step. You know, when you have a trophy husband, <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, I get it. You know, every day is a great day. So anyway, uh, if you're new here, thanks for being here. Um, we're, we're glad that you're here. Uh, so we're, we're kind of in the middle of this series that we started last week. And, um, and, and let me give you kind of a recap as they kind of get all this. Uh, Nick, look at you, man. You're just doing it, man. You're doing it. Wow. Look at you, man. You're really, ah, he's all over the place. Anyway, uh, that's fine. We don't end that part of it anyway. Oh, okay. <laughs> Maybe we did. I think we lost a... We lost a wheel somewhere along the way. You guys will figure it out. Okay. Anyway, uh, so my dad and I were having a discussion, and it wasn't, it was about a book, and it's actually a book that um, you may or may not be familiar with, you've probably heard of it, but it wasn't necessarily about the content of the book, but the popularity of the book. It came out a few years ago, and there's this guy, and it's kind of a phenomenon. We were trying to understand the phenomenon. His name's Jordan Peterson, and he wrote a book about 12 rules for, for, for life. And it's kind of a strange deal because we've come out of a culture in which um, mostly, my perception is, that a lot of people like self-help books. You know, how do I have a better week? And, and I understand that. But this was a different book because this was rules. And who buys a book about rules, right? Especially in our society. Like, why would we want to go and figure out how we can have a more strict and more rule-based life? Like, that just doesn't make any sense, especially the target audience. The target audience was um, young men. Those seem to be the last people that want rules in their life. And yet, um, he, he tapped into something, a, a need there within that community, is that they understood, okay, we've been sold this idea that we can go and live free, we can be autonomous, we can do what we want to do, and it's not really turning out the way that we thought it was going to turn out. And so they've come back to, well, I think we need some kind of structure in our life. We need some kind of rules to live by because we can't just keep living wild and, and free. And that's really what the series is about, is this series is about rules for living. And it's not the 12 rules, it's actually seven rules, and it's straight from the scriptures, and we're going to look at that here. Um, but these rules for living, uh, if, you, if you look at the origin, and this is kind of where these, these visuals come in, is if you trace back the word rule back to, I think it's like the ancient Latin regula, what you have is a description of a trellis. This would be like a trellis or a rule. And what it does is it helps the plant grow in an orderly way so that it can produce fruit and beauty. But what happens is if you don't have a rule, what it ends up looking like is this, is it may continue to grow, but it's not very beautiful and it's not fruitful. It just is kind of wild and unruly. And so the basic principle is we need rules if we want to grow in life. Same is true spiritually, is we need rules to grow. 
And so there's been, um, throughout church history, people talking about these spiritual disciplines or these rules, and we've, we've kind of come up with seven basic rules for Christian living. And so last week, Doyle talked about the first five, and today I'm going to go to the sixth. And so the way that we're going to do that is we're going to look at a story in the Gospel of Matthew. If you're not a church person, you don't know anything about the Bible, uh, Matthew is one of Jesus' disciples. He followed him around, got to know him, got to see his ministry, ended up believing in him, saw the resurrection, and then went and wrote his account of it called the Gospel of Matthew. There we go. Okay. What happens here is we're going to jump into chapter 4. And it, the, the, the scene is Jesus, right before he goes public with his ministry, so it's just the, the preceding scene before he goes public. Here's what happens. Matthew 4, 1. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I mean, yeah, I get it. <laughs> you know, I fasted 48 hours one time and I was like, I think I might die. I'm not sure. I think it's over. This is it. I'm wasting away to nothing over here. What's happening is, and we're not going to dive into the story today, but Jesus is going into training. He's preparing because he's got this mission that is set before him. And it's a pretty big deal. In fact, it's the mission to be the savior of the world. And so he has to prepare for this. He has to mentally and spiritually prepare, even get his body ready for what he's about to encounter. And so what does he do? Well, he goes and he practices the first five of the disciplines that we talked about, the first five rules. He goes into silence and solitude, a life of simplicity, reading and reciting scripture, praying and fasting. And this isn't just, uh, this isn't the only time that Jesus says this. This is just the first time. This becomes a routine of his. As he will go into public ministry and then he will withdraw into these and he will consistently go through these different rules to maintain himself mentally and spiritually and physically. Some of us right now are in a 21-day fast, and we've invited the whole church to be able to, to do this with us. And, uh, and so we're fasting. We're, we're trying to practice these disciplines. And the first five are disciplines that we can practice uh, within our own life uh, on a daily basis. And then the, the, the last two are, are kind of more communal uh, disciplines. And uh, for, for many of us, the most difficult is the fasting part is we're doing 21 days and we're fasting from different things. So some people are fasting from specific foods, which I'm doing. Uh, some of us are, are, um, are fasting from entertainment, news. That's a good thing. News, social media. All, yeah, some of you guys are like, I can't even, who are you people? You take time off from this? Yeah, no, we're serious. It's crazy. We're crazy people. But, uh, and, um, and so, it, and so it's, a, it's a way for us to train ourselves mentally and spiritually and physically for whatever God has for us in this coming year. So Jesus emerges out of the wilderness and he begins preaching this message. Verse 17, repent, the kingdom of God has come near. Now they heard this message and they had this concept of what the kingdom of, the God, kingdom of God is. And you probably hear this and you have a concept of what the kingdom of God is. And it's complicated, there's a whole theology of the kingdom of God, and we're not really going to get into that today, but here's what they heard when they heard kingdom of God. They heard, well, every kingdom has a king, and so that's going to be, because they were, they were first century Jews, that's going to be the Messiah, the one that we've been waiting for, the Savior. Uh, every kingdom has a territory, and so obviously that's going to be Israel. It has a people, that's the Jews, and it has the law, that's the Torah. And so they had this conception of, here's what the kingdom of God is going to look like, and then Jesus comes along and he goes... Yeah, I think you're going to be a little disappointed because that's not at all what it's going to look like. And you can see it immediately by who he begins surrounding himself with. 
After that, he starts calling people to himself to, to follow him. Eventually, they would become the disciples. And it is a random group of people. <laughs> if you know anything about the, the history of some of these disciples, you have, you have blue-collar fishermen, but then you have like fishermen who are businessmen, who have employees. So they're kind of like upper class. And then you have these, this guy who's a zealot. And zealot is an activist, but he's okay using violence. In fact, they, they would clash with Rome. And so he was probably, had been in some, some scrapes. And then you had this guy named Matthew, and he was a tax collector, and he was the outcast, and nobody liked him. He was kind of seen as a, a traitor am, uh, amongst his people. And so I was trying to think, what does a modern-day example look like? If Jesus showed up today, who would he call as his disciples? Here's kind of the scenario that, that I've come up with. Thank you. Uh, first person we call would be, uh, and if you don't know politics or political commentary, you don't know who this is, but Ben Shapiro, okay? So first guy he calls is Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro is a... Uh, he is a practicing Jew who also is very conservative and super smart and loves debating people, okay? And so you've got Ben Shapiro. And then he calls Ben, he says, follow me. Ben goes, okay. And then he goes to the next place and he goes, AOC, follow me, okay? <laughs> if you don't know politics, they're on the opposite ends of the spectrum here, all right? AOC, follow me, all right, great. Uh, and then he goes to the next one, he goes, okay, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Follow me. Here we go. Okay, got, and then he goes, and the local plumber, you're going to follow me too. All right, here's my crew. All right, this is where we're going to start right now. It is just a random bunch of guys that he has called together. <laughs> and so he starts teaching them what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. He starts laying out the value systems. And so he, he goes to the top of this mountain and people are following and they're listening to his teachings and the disciples are probably taking notes going, okay, what is he talking about? And he begins this speech. And here's how he begins the speech. In Matthew 5, 3, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on to lay out what are, are later referred to as the Beatitudes. It's the values, the ethics, the beliefs and behaviors of the kingdom of God. And as he begins to explain what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God, people start to look at each other and go, this is not just different. This is like backwards. Because everything that he is describing in comparison to all the other kingdoms of the world, it's like they're upside down. And so people begin to refer to the kingdom of God as the upside down kingdom because it seems to value all the things that are opposing the values of the world and vice versa. And so he goes and he lays this out. And by the way, the, the rest of the sermon would later be called the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, as he explains the ethics and behaviors and values of the kingdom of God, it not only becomes an important speech for the hearers, it probably is. No, I'll take that back. It most definitely is, whether you believe it or not, the most important speech in all of human history. Because this speech ends up changing not just individual lives, but nations. The nation that you live in, the West. For thousands of years, this speech right here is what transforms mankind. So let's pull back a little bit. What, what's happening here? What is Jesus doing just right off the bat in his ministry? Well, we see that he's starting to draw us a picture of the kingdom of God. And it does have the elements of a kingdom, but they're very different than what we would have anticipated. So does it have a king? Well, yes, it has a king. And yes, this king is the Messiah. But this Messiah is going to look much different than everybody thought. See, they thought that the Messiah was going to come in political power, that they were going to, he was going to defeat the enemies. But that's not what Jesus came to do. He didn't come in power, but in weakness. He didn't come to 
to take over uh, Israel or Rome. He came to, to serve. Is there a law? Well, yeah, there's a law in this land. But it's not the law of the Old Testament, of the Torah. I mean, yeah, that's all good, and that's great, and there's 600 rules to follow. But he boils it all the way down to two. And he says, the rule or the law of the land is going to be love God and love your neighbor. What about a territory? Is he here to take Israel back? Well, not, not right now. The territory that he has come to take are people's hearts and minds, those who willingly submit to him as king. And what about the people? Is it this specific chosen people? Well, it's actually for everybody. It's for people who want to come and submit their lives to him. It's not if you're a part of this group or this tribe or from this nation. It's for everybody. And he says this right off the bat and shows us because he calls a bunch of people who have nothing in common. And he says, follow me. So I don't want you to miss this. And it's kind of the big point. And this is our jump off point. At the core of the kingdom of God is the creation of a new community. It's a new family. Is that this idea that Jesus has come to establish this community of people who follow him and the kingdom of God, those two concepts are inseparable. You cannot have the kingdom of God without the community of Jesus. And so the, uh, the church... Um, and when we hear church, we have all this, you know, historical and cultural baggage. Because when I say church, you probably think of either maybe like a you know, little church with a steeple and a pastor. Maybe you think of this place. Maybe you think of the place that I got dragged to growing up. Maybe you, I don't know what you think of. But whatever your concept of church is, is probably off as far as what Jesus had in mind. Because he says what the, church, what the church is at its core is a group of people who are coming together to proclaim that I am king. What the church does, well, it does different things. It worships. Uh, we, we learn together. We read the scriptures. We pray together. But the church, at its essence, is a community of people. That's why we spend so much time and energy trying to get you to, um, to get out of just looking forward in rows and looking at one another in circles. Like we try to get you into rooted and into groups. And into, I mean, we just spend tons of time and energy. Um, not because it, it's like, you're going to have so much fun. I mean, you'll have fun, but like, because it's the point. Like, this is what we do. We're, we're not very creative around here uh, oftentimes. And so you can tell by the way that we've titled the different buildings on campus. So like, we, this is like the worship center, because <laughs> you know what we do here. We worship. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's crazy. Uh, and then over there, we're building this new building. You know what it's called? It's called the CLC Community Life Center because you know what we do over there? Life together in community. That's right. I know. And then you know what we have in the kids building? Kids. kids. <laughs> you know what we have in the warehouse? A bunch of animals. Okay, that's what we have out there. A bunch of crazy youth. Anyway. Uh, Scott McKnight, a theologian, says this. You can't be kingdom people without being church people. There is no kingdom now outside the church. So church, I grew up in the church. Look, I'm a pastor's kid. My wife is a pastor's kid. We have generations of pastors. I think I was born in the second row. Like I, I was here, you know, I'm here all the time. My life is the church. But I, even I, who have spent my entire life in the church, I feel like I underestimated how much Jesus valued the church. And I don't know why. It's kind of obvious when I look back. Paul says that Christ died for the church. Ah. See, the church is a big deal. It's not a peripheral thing in our faith journey. It's a leave it or take it kind of thing. It's, it's kind of like central to the point. 
is Jesus came in order to create a church, a, commu- a Jesus community. So here's where I would normally go with this talk. Uh, I would begin telling you all the reasons why you need to be plugged into community. Like I would tell you all the benefits of here's why you should get into a group and here's why you should do it. And I would kind of explain all this. And I think all of that's true. And I'll be honest, I wrote that sermon earlier in the week. Like it's going to help your spiritual growth and it's where God can communicate to you. And I have all the bullet points and maybe I'll use that sermon down the road. But I decided, you know what? That's not the sermon I'm going to give. Unfortunately, I didn't realize this until yesterday. So we'll see how it goes. But no, you know what? Let's go a different direction with this. Let me explain to you the three reasons why you are probably not going to get into community. Like the obstacles and barriers to you experiencing the kind of Jesus community that he had, had, had a vision for. So the first one is this, intimidation. Uh, some of you guys know this about me is I am uh, what they call an introvert. Is when I think about making uh, new friends... And, and, and introvert doesn't mean like, people always go like, I had someone come to me last night after I said that and they go, hey, you know, I know you're an introvert, so you probably don't like me. And I go, that's not how this works. You know, like, I'm not, introvert doesn't mean hates people. I mean, I might hate you. I don't know, but I don't hate you. I might dislike you. I don't know. Anyway, um, introvert just means like the way that I get energized, the way that I kind of get refilled up um, is by being alone. And it's, you know, it's not that I dislike you. It's nothing like that. I like people, okay? It's that I just need to be alone sometimes. And I, to be honest, it's I, I, when I'm in big social situations, I kind of, you know, close up a little bit. Some of the people are lifes of the party, right? So I have a son. You've probably heard about him. Uh, he is four years old. His name is Jed. And he is, um, he is a challenge because he is an extreme extrovert. Like, this kid has never met somebody who is not his best friend. We try to teach him stranger danger. He doesn't understand the concept. He goes, what's a stranger? I go, well, here's a stranger. You know, he goes, that's just a friend I haven't made yet. And I go, no, no, dude, dude, no, that's not how this works, you know. And so he is just constantly out there. And it is the opposite of who I am. If you see me in social settings, if I don't know the people very well, I am just like in the corner, like, hey guys, <laughs> oh, you know, like I'm just, oh, I don't, I, I don't, because that's not me. That's not who I am. It is, I'm not the life of the party. I'm not super outgoing. I'm not, I can be, but that's not my natural disposition. And so some of you guys think about trying to get into a community and really invest in and open up. And it just sounds intimidating. It sounds so scary. But here's what I've realized. For me, um, I'm not, this isn't my natural disposition, but it is necessary for my growth. Is my natural disposition is I want to go out and live on a ranch somewhere or work in my garage or whatever. And I will stop and say hello to people bless you, and then I'm gone. But what is necessary for my growth is I must invest in a community of people. Amy and I have tried to be very intentional about this uh, in the last uh, probably seven or eight years, is we have invested in a group of people whom we meet with at least on a monthly basis, where we're doing life with them and intentionally investing in those relationships. The other fear is uh, fear of embarrassment is sometimes when we think about especially entering into a community like this where um, you may have to discuss certain things like the Bible. First session of Rooted, 1.0, first week, there's always one person in the group who says, 
by the way, I know nothing about the Bible. And you could tell it was almost like they were so afraid that they didn't sign up, but then they did. But they're just like, I hope no one asked me about the Bible because I know Jesus and Moses. That's it. <laughs> it's like, dude, don't worry about it. Don't, that's okay. You know, that, that's, what, that's what you're here to do. Some of us are afraid of being hurt. Is a community is where we can feel love and, and connection and intimacy, but it is also a place where many of us have experienced heartbreak. It's people. People are messy. Relationships are messy. When you put a bunch of them together, wow, that can be just a, a disaster. Amy and I were discussing a couple years ago uh, about the community that we're involved in, and we thought, okay, maybe it's time for us to grow this and start small groups individually um, amongst some, some people at the church. And her response was, I just don't know if I can do it again. Because we've led small groups so many years, so many different groups, and she's just like, I just don't know if I can do it again because everybody always leaves. Like the the group either fizzles out or it blows up. I said, babe, that's because you're not a a good leader. (laughs) Kidding. I'm kidding. I did not say that. That is not true. I just wanted to see if you were listening. That is not true at all. She is an amazing leader. I'm not. Okay. Uh, no, because it's, it's when you get people together like this, it just, it gets messy. You know, people just, they have personalities, they have stuff, you have stuff. And it just seems like, wow, can these relationships actually stay together? So some of us, we're just afraid of being hurt. Others, we're afraid of accountability. Because our whole life is keeping people at arm's length. We can't let them too close. Either because they're going to see something about us that we just aren't ready to expose or because they're, they're going to see something and then they're going to hold us accountable for that thing. So I'll be honest, I think, and this is probably biblical, is um, one of the reasons why we do a corporate fast is because it keeps one another accountable. When I get up here and I announce, we're doing a 21-day fast, you know what I can't do on Tuesday? I think it's time for Cinnamon Toast Crunch. <laughs> you know, I just, I can't do that. You know why? Because I have now made it public. I have put it out there amongst my friends that this is what we are doing and I'm accountable for it. A lot of us, we don't want to be accountable. And so we're not going to put it out there. We're going to keep people at arm's length. We're just going to make sure that nobody gets in close and then we don't have to be accountable for what God may be calling us to do or some things in our life that need to be addressed. And then of course, there's this fear of commitment is uh, we live in a culture that is afraid of commitment, not just to the church, but pretty much to, to anything in the world. Um, I was thinking, I, I heard a story about a doctor who was meeting with uh, a patient of his, and the doctor, after speaking with him, said, um, I think you might have a phobia of marriage. Do you think you have any of the symptoms? And the man responded, I, I can't say I do. He said, that's, that's exactly it. <laughs> Come on, that was a dad joke. I threw it in there just for you. You didn't see it coming, and I was like, boom! Dad joke. See, I had to make it light, because you've got commitment issues, and I can't just go, yeah! And I was like, dad jokes. Okay, all right, fine. <clears throat> I knew I shouldn't have done that. You told me not to do it. My dad told me not to do it, but I was like, it's a good joke. <laughs> oh, Okay. Second thing is this, idealism. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, says that each one of us, when we think about community, we have this preconceived idea, this ideal picture of what this community that we can belong to would look like. And so it may be like a a Christian version of Friends or Cheers, Seinfeld, Big Bang Theory, Full House, Boy Meets, or you pick your favorite TV sitcom 
And you think, if I could have a Christian version of that, that's what I'm looking for. The problem is, is that that doesn't exist. That's not real life. There is no ideal community out there. They're always going to be hard work. They're always going to be messy. And if you continue to search for the ideal community, you'll never get to be a part of a real community. It's unreasonable expectations for other people. And what it does is it makes you a consumer instead of a contributor because you're always looking. Who can feed me? What is the group that can make me feel better? C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Screwtape Letters. Great book. Very interesting. He imagines... an elder demon and a younger demon, and they're corresponding back and forth um, through letter. And they're trying to pull somebody away from the faith or keep them away from faith, and it kind of describes their tactics in this imaginary sense. Here's what he says. This is one demon to the other. Surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or connoisseur of churches. It says, as you go and you try to find this ideal, perfect community to belong to, what will end up happening is you become a, a critic and a consumer of church instead of a contributor. Bonhoeffer says, just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate with ourselves. Here's what he's saying. Don't, don't miss this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, what needs to happen is you need to make it through the cycle of disillusionment if you ever want to experience real community. Meaning you'll, you'll go into a community and you'll look around and you go, these people are a mess. I mean, the more that I get to know them, the more I'm like, I'm surrounded by crazies. And then you'll wait a little bit longer and you'll hear more about their life and you'll go, not only are they crazy, I think all Christians are crazy. They're all messed up. They're all hypocrites. They're all a disaster. And he says, but here's the problem. You're going to want to bail. But don't bail. Because what happens is you'll get to the end and you'll go, not only are these people messed up, I'm really messed up. And that's when you'll start to experience community and start to see yourself for who you truly are. But the temptation is to bail along the way going, oh, they're messed up. Christians are messed up. This is, stick around long enough and you'll start to see where you're messed up. And that's where you're going to start to find community. And here's the last one. And I I think this is probably the, the main obstacle to experiencing this kind of Jesus community within our culture is individualism. We, uh, we live in a highly individualistic culture. And so individualism is this idea that we are independent, free persons. We're autonomous. We're self-reliant, meaning I can think and decide for myself. I can pursue my wants and my desires without anybody getting in the way. And individualism is not a bad thing. In fact, it comes from Christianity. Individualism is rooted in the idea that all the way back in Genesis that you were made in the image of God. That makes you intrinsically valuable each and every one of us. And then Jesus comes along and he even one-ups it and he says, um, and not only that, but God loves you and wants a relationship with you, not based on what group you're a part of, but on your individual decision to follow him or not. And then we have even more that added on top of that, like the Reformation that says we can go directly to God. We don't have to go through the church. And, And so we have inherited this individualism and it's a great thing. Because as a result, we have things like democracy, where people's, every, every person's vote counts, or individual rights and equalities and freedoms. The problem is, 
is that when we take this individualism to its extreme, which we have done, and it becomes hyper-individualism. And hyper-individualism, it doesn't just value um, the person or the self. What it does is it says the person or this, the self is primary. It's absolute. It trumps all others. And so let me give you a couple examples. The way we build our identities. Uh, before, the way that you would build your, your identity is you would look outward to the roles and relationships that you have in your life. And it's through those roles and relationships you would understand who you are. Now the way that we build identity is we look deep within ourselves to understand ourselves, to see who we truly are, or, or the law. Everybody lives by a moral code or a law. It used to be either God's law, primarily, or it could be a community's law. But now we've dismissed those and we've said, no, no, the law that I follow is my own. I am a law unto myself. And so the way that I decide what is right or wrong is what I believe deep down inside this is especially true when it comes to sex and sexuality and our ethics or meaning and fulfillment and happiness. At one time, it was found in fulfilling those rules and responsi- roles and responsibilities to, that I had to maybe my country or my community, my family, and especially to God. Is I found my meaning by playing the role well that I was given or, or, or doing well with the responsibilities But now, the way that we find happiness and meaning is by pursuing my own personal interests and wants. It's not about what what role I'm supposed to play in fulfilling. No, no, it's about what, what does Cody want? We've even taken things like money and sex, these fundamental things, and we've turned them upside down. Before, sex and money were about the community, meaning sex was a way for you to nurture your relationship with your spouse, and it was about creating a family. And then money was about supporting that family that you've created, Now we've turned it upside down. Money and sex is how we create an identity. Think about it. Think about uh, primary identity markers for people these days. There's entire groups that their identity is based on either their wealth and status or their sexuality. Because we have started to identify who we are with money and sex. Keller summarizes like this. He says, before we found ourselves in our duty, or we find our identity in our duties, now I find who I am in my desires. And you can hear it in our language. Be yourself, follow your dreams, live your truth. You can see it in our lifestyles. Every technological advancement, uh, probably for the last 50 or 60 years, has been to pull you away from community and into individualism. Think about it. Your car. What is your car? Your car is like a, an isolation cube on wheels, right, where you can get away from people. I just hide in there sometimes from my kids. You know, I just go, oh, they don't know I'm here, you know, because it's a way for me to just get everybody out of my life and just be by myself. Simple inventions. The washing machine. Uh, my sister just moved into a place where she has her own washing machine, and they said it's a game changer. It is, oh, it has revolutionized our life. Why? Well, I don't have to take turns. I don't have to talk to the weird lady down the hall who's hanging her bras. You know, it's just the whole thing. It's great. Because <laughs> I can do it now by myself. Go to a restaurant. Look around. What are people doing? They don't, even, they don't even talk to each other because they're in isolation. They're iPhone. They've been able to disconnect from the people, even the people who are face-to-face with them. I could go on and on uh, about all the developments of social media, the internet, all these things, TVs. We used to sit on porches and talk to people. Now we go inside, we close the blinds, and we say, please, 
don't talk to me. It's all pulling us away from community and into individualism. And here's the result of this hyper-individualism, loneliness. We've talked about it before. There is uh, what is being called an epidemic of loneliness in our country. The more individualistic we become, the lonelier that we are. And it's killing us, literally killing us. Studies have shown that um, the, the loneliness on our health has the same impact as smoking 15 cigarettes a day and more dangerous than obesity. Time Magazine said that the leading cause of death for young people is deaths of despair, meaning they're turning to drugs, alcohol, and suicide because they're so lonely. Some of us, we say, well, I'm going to go out and I'm going to find it. I'm going to find a community. And what happens is we end up we end up going from loneliness to tribalism. And tribalism is the dark side of community. Tribalism is, I'm going to go find a tribe of people that I can connect with. And if I can't find people who love the same thing, at least we're going to hate the same thing. We're not going to have the same goal, a common goal. We're going to have a common target. This is what you see happening in politics. As I will find my tribe, and what will hold us together is how much we hate that tribe. See, we will find community. It just may not be a healthy community. And we could go on, and there's tons of studies about the loss of identity and meaning and purpose, but let me just finish with this. I want to talk about really quickly what the result has been on the church. Mark Sayers and others have argued that um, hyper-individualism is one of, if not the main thing, that is killing the church and people's faith in the West. He says that um, what has happened is, he says that the church in this move towards hyper-individualism, the church has said, we want the king, but not the kingdom. Listen to this part. This is, this is the most important part in the next couple minutes. The church has said in the past decades, we want the king, but not the kingdom. Here's what he means. He says, for the last few decades, Christians have come to church and said, we love Jesus. We want him as our savior. We sing worship songs to him. However, we don't want to actually live in his kingdom. We want to live in our own kingdoms. Instead of building his kingdom, we'd actually like to build our own little kingdoms. And this is obviously true. We all do it. Because if you think about what kingdom we're building, just look at what do you spend your money on? You. You spend your money on you. Statistics show that less than 5% of churchgoers actually tithe. I want to live in my kingdom, not yours. Well, what do you spend your time and energy on? Are you building his kingdom or are you building yours? Are you building your career? Are you building your name, your brand? You're building you. You're building your kingdom. Or what about the values? Do your values reflect the values seen in our culture, or do they reflect the values seen in the kingdom? See, what has happened is, and I'm going to be totally honest with you, my generation and the one coming up has looked at the previous generation, and I'm not trying to be rude, I'm just telling you straight up, here's what's happened, looks at the previous generation and goes, you don't actually believe that. Like you took us to church and we attended and we watched and, and we saw what you proclaimed. You came and you were in the small group. You sang the song. You said Jesus is king. But what we saw at home on the day-to-day was your king. This is your kingdom. Because we see how you spend your money. We see how you live your life. We know what you're all, all about. And you're about you. And so you're not about the kingdom. You want Jesus as king so that he can help build your kingdom. 
See, what happens is, is we've invited Jesus into the passenger seat and we say, hey, why don't you come along for the ride? You're awesome. You're great. And as long as he's taking us where we want to go, as long as we get all the things that we need, Jesus can come along for the ride. But you know what happens? As soon as Jesus starts calling us in a different direction or doesn't uh, provide what we think we, we want, we kick him out. Bye. You know how I know this? 50% of you are not here anymore. 50%. Not just here at this church, but in church in America. 50% gone like that during the pandemic and have never returned. Why? I, I don't know. Jesus clearly wasn't king, so they kicked him out somewhere along the way. The other thing that happened is, he points out, is that secularism and the spread of secularism that we see, it's a byproduct of a church that no longer wants Jesus' kingdom. They only want the king. Because what they've done is they've taken the kingdom and said, we will take parts of your kingdom, but we want nothing to do with your king. These are my friends that I grew up with. They saw church, they saw all the results, and they said, why would I want this baggage of Jesus as king when I can be the ultimate authority, which is what I want, but I will take parts of his kingdom. Because the parts of his kingdom, I, I do want some of those. The justice and the mercy and the equality, all the things that were built upon this Christian foundation, I like all of those things. So I'm going to keep those. I'm going to get rid of the sexual ethics. I'm going to get rid of Jesus as the cosmic authority where I can rule and reign over this kingdom. And so the problem is, and we already be, we've already begun to see the cracks in the foundation, is when you... When you take the king off of the throne who has built the foundations that the kingdom is built upon, it won't last very long. That capital will run out soon. And we're seeing this. Is without Jesus as king, the kingdom is going to start to crumble. Those values are going to start to go away. And so I don't even know where to end the sermon, to be honest. I don't know how to tie it in a bow and go, here's how you have a better Monday, you know, have a good one. I don't know. I don't know. This is complicated. This is tough stuff. This is things that we're wrestling through. But I think we've got to be honest with where we're at. So here's a place that I think we can start as we try to figure out what does it look like to put Jesus as, as not only king, but live in his kingdom. He says in Matthew 10, 39, whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Here's what he's saying. Quit trying to find yourself it's destroying you. It's destroying the people around you. It's destroying the culture. Quit trying to find yourself. Quit trying to go deep within and find out who I, quit it. He says, here's what you need to do. You need to lose yourself. Lose yourself in service and commitment and love for me. Lose yourself in serving your community and in your families and in your marriages. Just completely lose yourself. And once you have done that, Something strange is going to happen. You're going to wake up one day, and as you have lost yourself because you've stopped thinking about yourself, you're going to wake up and go, and that's who I am. It makes sense now. When I lost myself in service and love for others and stopped being so concerned about me and my wants, I actually figured out who God made me to be. And so that's the challenge, is what does it look like in your life and in mine and in this church for us to just stop trying to find ourselves and instead lose our own lives. Let's pray. Lord God, we, uh, we face a challenge uh, as a culture, and it's not a challenge that's insurmountable. It's not a challenge that the church hasn't faced. In fact, it's, uh, 
It's a challenge that we are anxious and we are ready to, to, to pursue with your Holy Spirit and, and your power. Um, Lord God, but we know that what it's going to take. And we don't know all the ins and outs and we don't know what's going to happen. But here's what we do know is we have to begin with you. We have to begin with putting ourselves aside, all of our wants and all of our desires and building our little kingdoms and instead saying, you know what? We are losing our life for your sake. Lord, we want to love you. We want to love our neighbors. And as we do that, we really do believe that not only are you going to change the people around us, but you're going to change us. You're going to show us who you made us to be. And so, Lord God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for this community where we get to come together. We can worship. We can pray. We can practice the sacraments. Um, Lord, I don't know where I would be without you and without this community, but I am so thankful for both. Lord, we, we love you. We praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Will you guys stand with me? Thank you guys so much for being here this weekend. Uh, we will see you next week. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we also have live services out in our West Auditorium on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings. Or you can always join us live at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time. 